take your scriptures and open with me to Matthew. We're going to be looking at about 17 verses in Matthew 27. I want to thank Mark for putting all that pressure on me to, to weep before. I was thinking about that the whole song. I didn't, we couldn't even concentrate on the song. Where are you, Mark? Where are you? Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> America has 25 military cemeteries overseas, which are the final resting place for more than 100,000 Americans. According to the American Battle Monuments Commission, the cemetery at Normandy, France, is the most visited receiving over one million visitors each year. It was established just two days after D-Day on June 8, 1944, and has the unique honor of being the first cemetery on European soil in World War II. The cemetery covers some 172 acres and contains 9,386 of our military dead, each marked with a gravestone shaped in the, in the shape of a cross. People say it is an emotional experience to visit there. Some words people have used to describe it are disturbing, sad, poignant, tragic, grateful, heartbreaking. To stand there and see row after row after row of crosses and realize that beneath each one of those crosses is a body of an American that, as Abraham Lincoln said, gave their lives that we might be free. is an intense experience. In our text today, we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. There are not 9,386 crosses. There's three. And in the middle is our Savior. And as we gaze upon the cross on which he hangs, perhaps many of those adjectives come to mind. Maybe they'll come to mind as we read together, starting in verse 27. God's word says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink. 
mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they had put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Lord God, as we come to this scripture, we ask you to pierce our hearts. Help us realize what you went through for us. Perhaps for some, maybe for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. So each of these Gospels, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they include an extended description of the, of the crucifixion but from different perspectives, because they had different audiences in mind. Mark had a Roman audience in mind. Luke had the Greek reader in mind. John kind of went off the page on his own, and and he took seven miracles, and his purpose was to prove through those seven miracles that Jesus was the Christ. But Matthew here has tailored his writing to the Jewish-speaking audience. And we've seen this evidence throughout the gospel, throughout the chapters that we have walked through. From the beginning, we see him detailing out a genealogy, going back to Jesus' interaction with the law. He was always interacting with the law. From his extended dealings with the Pharisees and scribes to his kingdom language that he used throughout. But a major way we see this Jewishness, this, this tailoring to the Jewish audience, the major way we see it throughout the gospel is his constant theme of Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. He's constantly doing that. Matthew is constantly reminding us that the Old Testament is the new concealed and the New Testament is the old Revealed. And that is what we see here in these few verses explicitly. Matthew is really pushing in here in this way so that we don't miss the plan of God. He wants us to see the plan of God. 
Matthew doesn't want us to miss that this was all planned from the very beginning. There was a man who was a good husband and dad. Good husband. Good dad. He loved his family faithfully. He was always around. Steady. He took care of them. His influence in his family was central to everybody's life. Even if it wasn't recognized by those he loved. Many times his family did not fully appreciate the scope of his love. That is until one day when they found his journal. Upon opening it, they could see the backstory of all their memories. Their happy experiences were intricately planned and carefully executed. When they could see the backstory, these previously hidden details in his journal, the family was filled with a new kind of appreciation and love for their dad and father. Through the journal, they were welcomed into the quiet place of intentional planning. They could see how they were central to everything that he had done. Thumbing through the journal, they realized his amazing love for them. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're doing right now through the Gospel of Matthew. We're thumbing through God's journal and his intricate planning on how he planned to love us. I hope we have seen and, and realized that we are central to everything God has been doing. And in these 17 verses, Matthew wants to reveal to us that through Christ's sacrifice on the, on, the, on the cross, that it was intricately planned down to the very detail. Like verse 34. If you look at verse 34, you see that they offered him wine mixed with gall. The people that were doing it thought that they were just medicating him, trying to deal with his pain. But what they were actually doing was fulfilling Psalm 69:21. Or verse 35, you'll see verse 35 there. They were dividing his garments among them. They thought they were treating him as the worthless criminal that they thought he was. But what they were actually doing was fulfilling Psalm 22:18. Or look at verse 38, where he's crucified between two thieves. The people thought that they were just executing Barabbas' accomplices. That's all they thought they were doing, when in actuality they were fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy by Isaiah 53:13. Or look at verse 39. The people, people, the passers-by were wagging their heads and ridiculing. In our reading this morning, we read through Psalm, this part of the Psalm 22. Matthew wants us to draw a straight line from that and see the intricate planning and the dedicated love that he has for us. Or the detail in 43 where the chief priests and scribes mocked Jesus. They thought that they were, they were from on high. They thought that they were just discrediting this person as the Son of God. When really they were fulfilling Psalm 22.8. Matthew does not want us to miss how intricately planned this crucifixion was. 
He doesn't want us to miss that this is the long-awaited, long-anticipated, long-written-about Messiah who has come to save the world. He doesn't want us to miss that. Who would give his life to pay for the sins of the world. That Peter would later reflect upon sitting somewhere, writing on a scroll, and saying he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and become And live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Peter was thinking about the crucifixion. This is all planned so long ago. Like that father who journaled. Who planned out the family activities. Our heavenly father has planned and executed our redemption. And that should make us realize how loved we are. How loved we are. Imagine if you found a journal of your parent that had some of your best memories and and, and ways that you felt loved the most written down and planned beforehand. How loved would you feel? That That should be washing over us now at the crucifixion. Matthew wants us to stand before the cross and perhaps feel maybe a little poignant, a little sad, maybe maybe our heart breaking a little. But most of all, Matthew wants us to feel loved. Because it was planned. But also, Matthew doesn't want us to miss the location. He doesn't want us to miss the plan, but he also doesn't want us to miss the location. I don't know if you have been over to Israel and gone on those tours that they take you on in the Holy Land. You know, you'll visit certain places when they take you there. If you go, you'll, you'll visit the birthplace of Jesus. I mean, who knows, right? Maybe, you know. I know when I was there, they took us to the, to the multiple, where, the, where Christ multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And, and wouldn't you know it, there's a little stone in the ground that, that marks the occasion. I don't think that, that Jesus had that stone placed there. You'll be taken to the Garden of Gethsemane, possibly. You'll walk down the Via Della Rosa, maybe. And they'll take you to Golgotha. You will go to Golgotha. And if you've been on these tours, you know it looks something like this. That's what Golgotha looks like. If you look closely, you'll, and from a certain angle you will see two sunken eye sockets and a bony nose. They take you here because each of the four Gospels, each of the four Gospels translates Golgotha, the place of a skull. So, here's a skull. Looks good. Certain, makes a certain amount of sense. Perhaps this is the place, or, or maybe, like R.C. Sproul wrote, it was named because there were tombs in the area, or because it was a place where people were put to death, possibly. All of these may be true. But it does cause you to wonder, at least it did me this week in my study, why did the Spirit inspire each of the four 
gospel writers to translate that. Why do they want us to know it's called place of a skull? Well, I think there might be a reason. I think there might be a reason why Matthew puts it here, why all the gospel writers put it there. I think they might be want us they might want us to connect the dots. Let's think back to 1 Samuel 17. You got it in your mind? You, you know it, right? Well, even if you don't think you know it, you know it. It's the story of David and Goliath. You know that. And in that narrative, there's a detail that is really interesting. As a matter of fact, you probably miss it when you're reading over the story. If you remember, it says that David, after David hit Goliath with a stone in his forehead... The text says, he ran over, he, David, ran over to Goliath. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its scabbard. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Three verses later, we read this. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. Hmm. Could it be that Golgotha was the place where David buried Goliath's skull? Hmm. Interesting. What if David did? If so, Matthew wants us to connect the dots and he doesn't want us to miss, first of all, that David did not look like Israel's greatest time. Israel's greatest king at the time of the battle. David didn't look like Israel's greatest king at the time of the battle, but he was. When David came to the battlefield that day, he was probably a teenager. After all, his father sent him with food to serve his three brothers that were in the army. But we cannot forget that one chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel had already come and anointed David as the next king. So David shows up at this battlefield, but he doesn't look like the great king. We stand as we stand before the cross of Christ in our text today and look at Jesus disfigured and dying. He doesn't look like a great king either. Verse 37 in our text tells us that they even hung a sign above him mocking his kingship. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews. Look at him as he's suffering, bleeding, and dying. Here's your king. He certainly didn't look the part of a king. We've certainly gotten a lot of good looks this week at what royalty looks like, haven't we? With the death of Queen Elizabeth II. If you've been watching the television at all, you've seen a constant parade of the royalty, right? What do they look like? They look clean and regal and respected. They look majestic, medallioned, right? Everything that Jesus is not. Jesus was born in a stable, not a palace. Jesus was a carpenter, not a courtier. 
He lived off handouts. And here Jesus hangs on a cross, shamefully, suffering, mocked, rejected. Just like David, he didn't look like a king, but he was one. Philippians 2, we read this, Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. There is where we are right now. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't look like a king now. But listen to what Philippians says next. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that 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 name of Jesus every knee will bow. This is kingly language. In heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we might not have a, a, a... A savior that looks like a king, but he is. He's reigning right now. The second thing that Matthew doesn't want us to miss is that David looked weak. But he really wasn't. When David went into that battle that day, he looked weak. I mean, think about it. Any onlooker would think that this is a foregone conclusion. Goliath is going to crush David. For one thing, there was the size difference. Uh, Some scholars placed Goliath between seven and nine feet. We're not sure. But his armor weighed 125 pounds. So he had to be pretty big. And when David tried on Saul's armor, it didn't even fit. He was so scrawny. He, He couldn't even wear it out onto the battlefield. So he put it aside. And then there was the training. There you have Goliath who was well-trained, he was battle-tested warrior. And here you have, creeping onto the battlefield, David. Well-trained as a shepherd. Then there were the weapons. Sword and spear, Goliath. Staff and sling. Weak. Any sane onlooker. It was a foregone conclusion. And that's exactly what the cross looked like. If you were standing there 2,000 years ago, looking at Jesus, not knowing what you know, you would be mocking the same way. This is the king. This is the guy. This weak show here. Jesus, the Messiah, the mighty Savior. What's he doing up there? In verse 27 through 31, the soldiers had beaten him so badly that, that most of his body was flayed open and bleeding. That's our mighty warrior. So weak that he couldn't even carry his cross to his own death sentence. Now he's tacked to a cross, hanging, bleeding and gasping for air. Here is your mighty warrior. And therein is the biblical principle that is all over Scripture. In weakness, 
there is great strength. The cross is, 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 the, is the nexus of this, but we see it throughout all of Scripture. In weakness, there is great strength. Isaiah 40, 29 says, He gives strength to what? The weary. And increases the power of who? The weak. 2 Corinthians 12, My power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the major principle that goes throughout all Scripture. Why? Because he wants to point to the cross. Even back, we see in Abraham's day. What does he do? Do you remember when we preached through Abraham or through uh, Genesis? We got to Abraham, and and and, um, and Lot was was taken. His brother-in-law is taken, and and Abraham pursues him. The, the and, and the four kings' armies have taken him, and, and Abraham pursues him with what? Three hundred and eighteen fighting men, and he wins. You remember, I mean, Gideon is probably the biggest example, right? Here Gideon has this big army and God says, nope, too big. Smaller, smaller, smaller. Midianite army is 20,000. I need you to get down to 300. In weakness, there is great strength. We see it with Elijah doing battle with the the, uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal. Little Elijah. And here we see it at the cross where Christ looks weak. But that weakness turns into victory. And that's the third thing that, that Matthew doesn't want us to, meet, to miss. David defeated Goliath with his own weapon. David defeated Goliath with his own weapon. You know, when you read the story, and, and maybe sometimes when it's put into cartoon form, it's the rock that kills Goliath, right? No, it's not the rock that kills Goliath. If you were listening, in verse 51, he runs over and what does he do? He takes his sword and finishes him. Kills him with his own sword. And that's the wonder of the cross. That is the wonder of the cross. Satan thought he had won. Brothers and sisters, really, Satan thought he had won. He had Jesus right where he wanted him. He had the Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah, the one that was supposed to crush my head. He's got him on the cross. He's gasping for air. He's weak. He's mocked. He's rejected. He's going to die. And Satan wields that big sword of death in our face all the time. He does the same thing. And it paralyzes us with fear. Death is scary. He directs our life by waving that sword. One of the tourist attractions in Chicago is the sky deck at Willis Tower. Willis Tower is the third tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, rising 108 floors. On the 103rd floor, some 1,400 feet in the air, is something called the ledge. 
the ledge. It's a glass box that extends out from the building four and a half feet. And people can walk out and feel like they're in the middle of the air 1,400 feet out. It's so terrifying that some people just burst out into sweat, scream, some people faint. Brothers and sisters, death is terrifying for most people. It's the end. It's the great unknown. It's the black hole. Most people approach death as they do the ledge. They're terrified of it. And Satan knows this. And he's constantly waving that weapon in front of your face. And Satan, at this moment, with Jesus on the cross, is about to plunge his sword into Jesus and kill him. And here's the wonder of the cross. Christ uses Satan's greatest weapon against him. Romans 5.10 says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through him, through the death of Christ. How, How are we saved? Through the death of Christ. How are we forgiven? Through the death of Christ. How do we enter, how do we have eternal life? Through the death of Christ. How are we released from sin's power? Through the death of Christ. Through the death of Christ, the things we, the thing we fear most, death, is done away with. It's come to be one of my favorite verses in scripture. It's Hebrews 13.6. says, my Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do? What can the world do to anyone who doesn't fear death? Nothing. What's the worst thing that can what's the absolute worst thing that can happen to you? You can die. To live as Christ to die is gain. John Owen titled his perhaps his most famous book. The death of death in the death of Christ. Listen to that. The death of death in the death of Christ. That's true. That's what's going on here. Christ is using Satan's greatest weapon against him. That's what Paul was imploring the Corinthian church to understand when he wrote, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory. He didn't write it. He gives us victory through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to be meditating on as we come to the Lord's Supper today. Meditate on the death of death in the death of Christ. That through Christ, you have no more fear of stepping out onto that ledge. Ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for what Christ has undergone for us. Lord, how intricately planned it was 
from ages and ages and ages ago that you knew what you were headed into the whole time. And you willingly hung on that cross for us, being mocked for us, gasping for air for us. Thank you, Lord. You are such a loving, loving, loving God. Such a good, good Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.